Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead, we have lower claims, lower inflation, and much higher stocks. The Dow up 513 right now. Better than expected data, giving investors a reason to buy. But is it too soon to put inflation fears aside? Plus, channel checks. One analyst got a first-hand look at just how low inventory and staffing is at some of the off-price retailers, like TJX that Pete just mentioned. What she found led her to cut her ratings on the stocks. She'll join us in just a moment. And when things are in short supply, who gets the product? Brick and mortar or online? We'll talk to the CEO of Overstock.com about their prep for the holiday season with a stock of 51% this year. But we begin with today's rally, and Dom Chu has all the numbers. Dom? This is the high point right now of the day so far in intraday trading. You can see here, we just hit about 71 points to the upside. This does represent session highs for the overall market with the S&P 500, 44.34, the last trade there. That's 71 points, as you can see there. It's up 23 at the low, so a decent-sized rally to start the day that's getting a little bit of steam here as we hit the midday portion of our trading day. The Nasdaq up about one and three quarters percent, 14.823 the last trade there. And the Dow Industrial is just about 34,900, up one and a half percent. A broad-based rally, especially for the large-cap side of things in the stock market. Turning now to the semiconductors, a key focus point for a lot of traders out there. Right now, this particular ETF that tracks them, the ticker SMH, the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF, nearly 3% upside right now. But you can see here, we're kind of right in between this little channel that we've seen for a while. So whether or not that represents an area that people want to buy as it hits record highs, perhaps again to reclaim, that could be one thing to watch as well. Also, keep an eye on what's happening with the banks overall, because those particular banks that reported earnings this morning are now a little bit kind of waning in, in terms of momentum. Bank of America is still up about three and one quarter percent. Citigroup up one third of one percent. Wells Fargo now down two percent and Morgan Stanley up nearly two percent. Mixed picture, but each of these companies reported better than expected results. And then it's probably the IPO of the day and maybe even the last couple of months here. GitLab, open source software, workplace collaboration company, fully remote work environment. That company comes out with an IPO today. It is now up 22 percent. Maybe this does signal something about sentiment when it comes to certain types of companies. This particular company has gotten a lot of focus because of its workplace regime and how it tackles things, especially during the COVID pandemic. So watch GitLab shares. We'll see if it can maintain some of that momentum. Big valuation now, very much so from that IPO price that we saw earlier. Yep, getting after it. Dom, thanks very much. Stocks are rallying broadly today on strong earnings that he mentioned from the banks, better than expected economic data. But consumer sentiment is still under pressure from high inflation and worries about the economy. Do these latest data suggest the skies are clearing? Joining me now is Jason Brady. He is president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Jason, what do you make of the outsized action today? Look, I think investors are absolutely concerned about inflation. It's certainly the number one question I get from almost every client. Uh, I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of a loosening of the supply chain bottlenecks of the goods prices problems. 
But what investors really need to keep in mind is the housing price challenges that are out there in the context of of how that feeds in and also wage pressure. So those are the two things that longer term I'm much more focused on than simply this supply chain challenge. So housing, wages, does all of this make you bearish then on the economy? No, actually, I'm, I think the economy is doing pretty well. The recovery, you know, bounce from the continued pandemic recovery is, is wonderful, uh, but it's starting to show some side effects, right? So what we have, high CPI or high price uh, increases, high wages, those are good things, right? That's a recovery problem, that, a problem we'd love to have. But right now it's a problem that the Fed has. And ultimately what we need to look at and what we'll see is, are they going to, you know, th- throw a little bit of... Uh, throw a little bit of, of, of uh, fire extinguisher into the mix of this, of this flaming economy. So absolutely, people are wondering just how much they might want to tap the brakes here. Obviously, the taper they talked about yesterday in the minutes and kind of the fact that it is looming, but tapering by $15 billion a month still leaves a lot of purchases or, or however that number is going to shake out. So, you know, what happens then if people, let me sort of ask it to you more tactically, where do you think the market heads if the Fed is possibly tapping the brakes or if high prices themselves are slowing the economy? Sure. So what you're really looking at is a rates question. And one thing that is extremely important for all investors, I think, to understand is the correlation of interest rates and equities is, is really high and, and extremely important. So if you look at, for example, long duration growth stocks, uh, if, as and if rates rise uh, because potentially the Fed is tapping the brakes in the context of a, of a strong economy. And growth stocks may look like those skinny jeans in your portfolio. You, you might have a few too many of them. And that's really the challenge, I think, of asset allocation and of portfolio construction. Well, <laughs> if they are like skinny jeans and the fashions are changing, then what do you think people should be adding here? So I think folks are generally underexposed to some cyclical names, you know, we really think financials uh, have some continued room, room to run here, um, as well as make sure you, you have a little bit of international exposure. So these are very typical exposures for folks to have. But at the end of a really long, strong uh, growth rally in the United States, uh, maybe people are a little bit underexposed. All right, Jason, thanks. No comment on your own skinny jeans situation. Jason Brady joining me from Thornburg Investment Management today. Well, sometimes you have to see it to believe it. Understocked store shelves causing Loop Capital to downgrade some of the street's favorite retailers from a buy to a hold as significant supply chain problems are impacting stores. After visiting store locations and seeing shelves cleaned out, especially in seasonal items and stores also seemingly understaffed, Loop cut its price targets on Burlington, Ross and TJX. Those stocks are mixed today and Loop Capital Direct of research, Laura Champagne, is behind those calls. She's the Grinch this season. Laura, we just talked to you about, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's, your concerns with Home Depot there. We had to have you back to talk about this call because just yesterday we talked to, you know, a different analyst about long-term uh, positive trends for the off-price retailers. Just at the end of Halftime Report, you heard Pete Nigerian speaking favorably about it. This is a well-loved name. What are your concerns? No doubt it's well-loved, and it's one we've loved over the years, but I'm seeing something that I haven't seen in years, which means as soon as you step outside of major metros, there's not nearly the amount of premium goods or luxury goods that there used to be. Weaknesses in inventory levels, particularly in seasonal goods, which is, is the opposite of the direction they've been going for years, and we know what's coming. We know there's going to be a massive hiring surge in, in advance of the holidays, and we know that there's a big backlog of 
goods that just can't make it to the stores right now. So seeing some issues in October that might not look tragic, our concern is that they get worse over the next two months and you have a disappointing holiday season. Because TJX has been a well-loved stock and is trading in multiples in the 20s, there's just not much room for error this holiday season. Let's talk about some of these price target cuts. TJ Maxx goes from 80 to 65, raw stores from 140 to 105, and Burlington from 410 to 285. Explain that. Sure. So some of it is just plain old cuts to sales and margins, you know, the, the norm. Some of it is that we also raised our discount rate, that we see cost of capital heading a little higher. The risk rate um, for these companies, just they're more risky than they were even three months ago. You know, we came out six months ago with a similar round of checks and we're as positive as we've ever been um, and thought that the, the lean inventories would actually create higher gross margins. Right now, though, I think we're hitting a tipping point where they just won't be able to bring in the sales that the street expects. And expectations are pretty high going into holidays that we will see a rebound as we continue to recover from COVID. That's really interesting there what you said about the discount rate. You know, at a time when we have historically low interest rates, explain why you're actually hiking your discount rate. Well, we think about the direction. I think that the direction for rates is higher. I heard your last guest. And if the, if the, Fed, if the Fed's hand is pushed by inflation, and look, all these companies we've been talking about, the home improvement centers, the off-pricers, even TJX says it will be raising prices, and it will have to, to offset the increased labor rates, the increased supply chain costs. We think supply chain costs for these companies are doubling right now in real time this holiday versus last. That could pressure the Fed, could push the Fed's hand next year. And Laura, as we wait to see what happens in the next couple of months, like you mentioned, then if we get closer to these price targets, obviously your, your opinion would maybe change about the valuations. But also, if it proves that they're able to keep growing that top line or that this isn't as much of a break as you anticipated, that would also maybe be a, catal- a, a more positive catalyst for people to watch. Yes. So if, if they do see on the lean inventories, better gross margins, they're able to somehow offset with price increases, the cost increases they're facing. You know, this is a rating that we could find ourselves reversing in less than six months. All right, Laura, thank you so much for joining us again. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. Laura Champagne with Loop Capital. Coming up, China's trading platforms are now in Beijing's radar as potential security problems amid the continuing government crackdown. We'll look at the regulatory risks for the so-called Robin Hoods of China. Plus, where have all the frackers gone? The investor shift from fossil fuels to ESG-friendly investments, not to mention poor returns, is leaving many fewer and smaller oil and gas players to profit from this boom. We'll dig into that disconnect next. And as we head to break, here's a look at the sector heat map with every group of the S&P in the green today. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. As China's crackdown plays out, the China Internet ETF, the K-Web, is trying to hold on to its gains this week. It's down today in what would only be its fourth positive week in the past four months. K-Web down a little bit less than 2% right now, trading just around 50. Here's a look at the largest U.S. listed names in the group. All are lower today, but they're positive for October. We're talking about Alibaba, JD.com, Pinduoduo, NetEase, and Baidu. The whole group is down sharply from its highs. The KWEB ETF down about 52% from its high back in Feb, about 56%. There, Pinduoduo and Baidu have dropped more than 50% from their record highs, but are still positive on a one-year basis. Alibaba is down about 48%, but it's 11% higher in October and on pace to break a three-month-long losing streak. Recall we just learned that Charlie Munger's Daily Journal nearly doubled its Alibaba investment in Q3. Now, shares of China's Nasdaq-listed online brokers are also down sharply today after state-owned media said they could face regulatory risks as a new privacy law takes effect November 1st. Our Eunice Yoon is in Beijing today with the very latest on the next phase of this crackdown. Eunice? Thanks so much, Hilly. Well, the Communist Party mouthpiece, the People's Daily, stressed that the new personal privacy law will govern the export of data of mainland Chinese citizens. And because of that, the law is uh, um, one that um, had said that this uh, new um, export Um, This governance of exporting data could pose a new challenge for online brokers offering stock trading services for mainland markets or major markets, including the U.S. and Hong Kong. It specifically named Futu and Up Fintech as companies that need to clarify how they share data of their mainland Chinese customers with foreign regulators, such as the SEC, as well as FINRA. And finally, it criticized Up Fintech, among other brokers, for transferring client data to its U.S. partner, Interactive Brokers. Now, Tencent-backed Futu um, has told the SCMP, the South China Morning Post, a Hong Kong paper, that it's assembled a team to check its use of client information to ensure compliance. Uh, the new personal information protection law, Kelly, as you had mentioned, goes into effect November 1st. And also today, Eunice, we learned that Microsoft is shutting down its local version of LinkedIn in China. This apparently was the last major U.S. social network still operating there. Yeah, and actually, it's been a very big topic of discussion here. In fact, the uh, hashtag Microsoft to close LinkedIn China is ranking number 12 right now on the, the top um, among the top trending topics on social media. A lot of people have been talking about how this is going to be really tough for them because they enjoyed going on LinkedIn to be able to search for jobs for English-speaking jobs to look um, to really broaden their pers- their prospects. So this is something that they were, a lot of people have been saying is, is really too bad for a lot of Chinese people. And also one other thing that was kind of interesting was that the Chinese version of the letter from LinkedIn um, actually left out a lot of the discussion about the difficult environment um, that uh, Microsoft had said it's, or, and LinkedIn had said it found itself operating in. So so there's been a lot of discussion about how different the two countries are at this point. And, and, and what sort of the real reasoning is. Microsoft saying it will shut it down due to a significantly more challenging operating environment and greater compliance requirements in China, just like you said, Eunice. And they will instead launch a job search site in the region that doesn't have LinkedIn's 
social feature. So, again, so a major move there. Eunice, thanks so much. As always, we appreciate it. Eunice, you and up at 1 a.m. for us in Beijing. Coming up, we'll speak with the CEO of Overstock about the supply chain issues he's seeing and how they're working to solve them. As we head to break, let's do a little bit of show and tell. We show the chart and tell the story. Shares of Walgreens are on pace for their best day since December after beating earnings estimates, boosted by a surge in demand for COVID vaccines amid a growing number of employee mandates. With the shares up 7.5%, here's CEO Ross Brewer telling our Bertha Coombs how Walgreens is dealing with the labor crunch. One of the things we recently did was introduce the $15 an hour minimum wage, and I think that helped uh, because I think this is a time where we need to make sure that people understand that these companies were here for you, and we understand the rising costs that they're also incurring in their lifestyles right now. And so we were able to also uh, look at our pharmacists and our pharmacist tech technicians and really applaud them for some of the work that they've done. And so we've passed on some bonuses to to those um, individuals in our stores. And so it's helping. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to the exchange, everybody. We're just off session highs. Dow is up 526 at one point. We're 50 points below that level right now, but strong across the board with gains of 1.4% for the blue chips, 1.5% for the S&P, 1.6% for the NASDAQ. Should mention in passing bond yields, again, just kind of sinking lower, adding a little bit more support there. Let's check the sectors. Every group is in the green. Technology is leading the way. But look at materials as well, up more than 2% today. We did have better data on jobless claims, a little softer PPI. That could be helping. Energy up there with about an 8 tenths percent gain. Still the leader for the year, up 50%. Here are some of the movers this hour. U.S. Steel is jumping following an upgrade at Argus Research to a buy with a $25 price target. It's up 4% today to around 22 saying they're seeing increased demand and higher pricing for steel as global economic conditions improve. And GoGo dropped as much as 5% after Tesla's Elon Musk tweeted that he's talking with airlines about installing the Starlink satellite internet network onto planes to provide in-flight Wi-Fi. Shares of rival plane Wi-Fi provider GoGo are down about 3%. Well, more workers on strike, staffing shortages having a domino effect, and wage inflation could actually be a good thing in some cases, maybe in most cases. It's all coming up in today's labor-focused edition of Rapid Fire. As we head to break, quick look at the Dow 30 heat map. Boeing in the red today, one of only two stocks, Walgreens, United Health, and Intel leading the way. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. With markets near session highs, we see about a one and a half percent gain across the board. Materials up two percent. Technology there as well. Energy is the laggard today, and we'll have more on that story in just a moment. But in the meantime, let's catch you up on a few other stories that should be on your radar today. It's time for Rapid Fire Labor Edition. We're digging into how staffing issues and wage inflation are impacting some big names. Joining me now, Peter Bookvar is Bleakley Advisory Group Chief Investment Officer and CNBC contributor. Tim Seymour is Seymour Asset Management Chief Investment Officer 
and fast money trader at our very own retail extravagant. Well, you're not an extravaganza. You cover the retail extravaganza court. <laughs> Maybe you are one yourself. Courtney Reagan is here uh, to round things out. So let's begin with Deer. They are the latest company facing a worker strike with roughly 10,000 UAW members from 14 facilities across the Midwest refusing to work after rejecting a contract worked out between the company and the union. The members are saying the agreement didn't sufficiently increase pay or guarantee pensions for new employees. The news briefly setting shares lower this morning before recovering. The deer strike coinciding with one at Kellogg, whose shares just turned negative on the year, and follows recent strikes at Mondelez, some smaller health care providers, a citywide carpenter strike in Seattle, and Peter, the looming strike in Hollywood. Is it just our imagination or are these becoming more frequent? Well, this is where inflation is now a Main Street issue and not just a Wall Street discussion about whether it's temporary or not. I mean, when you look at Deer, Deer, uh, the, the unions were looking for uh, about a 5% uh, increase in wages this year and next year. Well, we saw CPI uh, this week up 5.4%, and we saw the government, the, the new Social Security cost of living adjustment uh, is going to go up almost 6%. So that's where the perspective is from the unions, and even uh, they were offered for the next couple of years wage increases of about 2%. And this is, we're going to hear more of this from unions. Now, obviously, that's a small percentage of sort of the private sector pie. Right. But it did show that uh, this rise <laughs> in inflation is beginning to hurt people's pocketbooks. And, Courtney, we just talked to Laura Champagne. She says she's seeing staffing issues at TJX and, you know, some stores like that. We just heard from the CEO of Walgreens who says she was able to increase pay to 15 an hour, pay out bonuses to farm, uh, pharmacy staff and that sort of thing to help keep workers there. At some point, that seems like the only response is to try to keep increasing pay. Exactly. And I think, Kelly, it's a really hard thing to pull back once you begin to offer it, especially if you're doing it to try to pull an employee away from, or if not away from somewhere else, to incentivize them to come to your location over another location. Mm -hmm. It would be very hard later to to pull that back. Certainly incentives or one-time bonuses are something else. But I mean, it's it's going to be pretty incredible, I think, to see what the labor situation looks like as we go through these final months of the year. Because remember, this is when all the seasonal hiring happens for the retail in store, but also at those distribution centers and all of those package delivery companies. And many of them are saying, kind of admitting what's going on in the labor situation and saying, we're just going to have to get our own employees more hours. And actually, that's something that Walmart had been doing for the last several years, as opposed to going out and doing a very big hiring push just for seasonal workers. And Tim, I remember, you know, when we've uh, spoken with people about Target and their strong performance, I think the CEO himself has attributed their low employee turnover to the fact that they were able to increase pay and do some things uh, to keep people mm-hmm. on in the early stage of the pandemic. So here's my question for you as a trader. Do you avoid companies like Deere, Kellogg, all the, while they're having these issues? Or at some point, would you be avoiding the entire S&P 500? Well, look, we, Kelly, we've, you know, I think the markets have priced in a lot of these concerns. Uh, supply chain issues, first of all, on top of the labor issues. We already knew some of this was going on for Deere. Um, I, I think you know, on some level, this is a stock that's still up 23 or 4 percent year to date, but it's, it's 18 percent off its 52 week high. So the market has bought into the challenges here. I, I, you know, I think do a, do a pairs trade here. I actually like deer. Oh, excuse me, Caterpillar over mm. deer here, mm-hmm. because, again, they both maybe have some cyclical dynamics. Uh, Caterpillar's four or five turns cheap to deer on the multiple and, and deer may have less free cash flow. They really have to invest in precision ag. And, and I think where Caterpillar is actually buying back stock and looks like they'll triple their free cash flow over the next couple of years. So my approach would be to say, look, both stocks look interesting, cyclical challenges, maybe more structural for deer. 
And I like Caterpillar over Deer. And they believe got a strong upgrade today as well. Those shares are up nearly 3%. So that's kind of one, <clears throat> one, way to t- one thing yep. to take away from this. Um, let's move along talk Domino's, which is falling short of third quarter revenue estimates now amid staffing and stimulus headwinds. Here to deliver her hot take in the first rapid fire drop in since early 2020 and a sign <laughs> of normalization. Kate Rogers joins us. Kate, this led to their first same store sales miss in how long? In a decade, and anyone who knows me knows I have a lot of hot takes, Kelly, so I'll take you through this. So the same store sales decline down 1.9%, as you mentioned, uh, first decline in 10 years. On a two-year stack, though, which is what the CEO, Rich Allison, kept talking about on the call here, up over 15%, 15.6% gain. So that's still a pretty strong number there. As you mentioned, some staffing headwinds, you know, causing them to close stores early in some cases, not being able to handle all the orders that were coming in. And they also mentioned that the stimulus roll-off also impacted them negatively in the quarter when it gave them a nice boost throughout the last year. The staffing thing, though, was the big focus, and it's what basically every analyst on the call was asking about. Uh, they were talking a little bit about automation, removing some of the tasks that keep uh, workers kind of tired tied up and slow them down in some cases. Things like folding boxes, they're trying to get rid of that, make that a little bit easier for them to do. And also Rich Allison mentioned drivers not getting out of cars. They are working on this car side delivery. That's been very speedy for them and a nice boost to business. And he said, I foresee a future where the driver doesn't have to get out of the car. Now, what does that mean? They partner with Neuro, that robotics uh, delivery company. So maybe robotic pizza delivery, robots getting the pizzas out to the car at some point. I mean, he didn't say that specifically, but that's kind of where my head went and we'll see what happens. But As you mentioned, though, the stock took a hit this morning, did turn around. I think people are feeling a little bit more confident after the call. Peter, I don't even think this is like a like a jokey thing anymore. I think it's about to go mainstream. The idea. Look at Amazon unveiling that home bot thing. Tesla was kind of joking, not joking about one at its AI day. I mean, this is ultimately, it seems to me, somewhat disinflationary. Technology is going to replace a lot of roles that people used to do because of this. Yes, but keep in mind, that's been going on since the history of time, technology evolving and replacing that. I'm a believer that technology also creates a bunch of jobs. I thought it was sure. interesting with Domino's. It wasn't just delivery people. They couldn't find enough cooks to make the pizza. But I think that this is this is certainly a, a widespread situation. And when you have companies like Amazon that's now offering $22 an hour, a lot of these other businesses are having to wait, raise wages to compete with the bigger companies in order to attract these workers to do business. And final word to you, Tim, any pair trades you'd offer on this one? I tell you what, get long, get long any weakness, and you had your chance this morning, but the stock's now probably 7% off those intraday lows. I, I like Domino's. I, I realize uh, Peter thinks there's a lot of problems on the labor and the costs there, but I think unit growth uh, 30 times next year with their international, great story. All right, and the shares, like you said, are now up 2%. Kate, great stuff. Love it. Thank you very much, our Kate Rogers. And a quick programming note, Rich Allison, the CEO of Domino's, will be on Mad Money tonight with Jim at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Definitely don't want to miss that. All right, a day after portfolio manager Surat Sethi warned that FedEx labor costs are outpacing their price hikes, he's more bearish on the company. Rival UPS is getting an upgrade. Stiefel upgrading the stock to buy despite some tough comps today, citing strong e-commerce sales as a continued growth driver. The firm saying the recent drop in shares likely in sympathy with FedEx as labor bottlenecks they expect to be less of an issue for UPS. Stiefel also cites healthy peak demand, a limited industry capacity, and disciplined capital allocation as reasons to be bullish. Shares are up nearly 4% today. So, Tim, if the, isn't UPS also a highly unionized workforce? I'm very interested in the sort of the way things have been turned on their head here, that traditionally people, I think, favored FedEx over UPS for that reason. 
Meanwhile, highly unionized workforces are starting to go on strike, and yet this analyst is favoring UPS over FedEx. So can somebody explain this to me? Well, look, UPS over FedEx, by the way, was a great trade four or five months ago. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'd rather own FedEx here, having underperformed by 23% year to date, uh, significantly cheaper. And we know FedEx has been you know, not able to operate under the same consolidated margin as UPS. In fact, they're probably uh, 500 basis points better than FedEx on their consolidated margin, which is why the company trades at such a premium. Um, look, the, the secular e-commerce story is great, but to, to get to your question, look, I think, I think pricing power for both FedEx and UPS is as good as it's been and maybe as good as it ever gets. Uh, and therefore, I think they can offset a lot of the transportation and labor costs. And I think um, FedEx is the one to own. And, and you're protected if that's a pair trade, because, again, people are worried about cyclicality in the economy. Both these stocks will suffer. But FedEx, I think, has already priced in a lot of bad news. All right. Very interesting. And, Courtney, they are going to be the bottleneck if there you know, really is one for all of the packages this season. They've already given, I think, most retailers kind of those drop dead dates by which they have to, to ship things. And we've heard everybody trying to say order as early as you can. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, last year in the pandemic, certainly the situation was a little bit different, but it was still a pandemic. And UPS was sort of communicating to the retailers different price changes. And, and a lot of the retailers didn't really have any choice, right? If that's sort of their carrier and they've got orders they have to fulfill in that key fourth quarter, they've got to go with it. And so I think that there's just a lot of relationship building there that really cannot be unraveled. And, and this is really the linchpin uh, the, to, to how all of this is going to go this Christmas season for UPS, for FedEx, and the retailers, both getting those items to the store and, and then shipping from the store and to the consumer and from the warehouses, ultimately. And look, you know, Carol Tomei is the CEO of UPS. She used to be the former CFO at Home Depot, and she is an operator, and yes. she knows how to run a business. So I would not count out UPS. That's a great point. I see everyone nodding uh, as well there. And FedEx shares are down about 12% <laughs> this year. UPS trying to hang on to about a 11% gain after today's 4% hike. So finally, one possible beneficiary of all these higher wages could be Bed Bath & Beyond. Morgan Stanley saying their hard landing could be softened by strong labor income and a drawdown in stimulus savings. That said, the firm's still downgrading shares today to underweight, anticipating a broader slowdown in spending on home furnishings and electronics. Bed Bath & Beyond shares are down about 7% this week. And despite some meme trader interests, they're still down about 20% on the year. Peter, what kind of hard landing do you foresee here? And how much of a cushion is there from savings? Well, the one thing with Bed Bath & Beyond is is their, the competition for their product is so intense. Like, there's nothing special about what they sell compared to what you can get at a Walmart or Target. So while the macro could be right and that wage increases hopefully will at least try to catch up to where inflation is, uh, I think Bed Bath & Beyond, in terms of their competitive stance, still has a lot of work to do. And the wage gains that we're seeing are still below the pace of inflation. So real wages are still falling. Yes. And that is what's going to crimp consumer spending. And that's such an important point. You know, nominal gains, even in the 4 or 5% range, if the, if the CPI, if the COLA just went up 6%, that's not cutting it. Tim, I'll give you a final word on this stock. Maybe another pair trade to close things out. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I, you know, more, analysts have a tough job, but you're not doing me a lot of, a lot of favors by downgrading the stock after being down 48% over the last three months. Like, I, I think the stock actually is worth owning here. It's hmm. three and a half times multiples near the bottom of its range. It's actually got a billion in cash. They haven't had a balance sheet like this in years. 
And I think the brand turnaround is there. We know all about supply chain with Best Buy. Uh, again, this is, I mean, in Bed Bath & Beyond, excuse me, this, this story um, has, has endured a lot of this pressure for the last three or four months. So uh, I'd be the other way on this trade. Sorry yeah. about that. Listen, if one of them could change their ticker, they would be doing us a huge favor every time there was a story <laughs> I'm, on one or the other. I'm glad remember, I caught myself. At least wow. BlackBerry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. It trip you up every time. Guys, that was great. Thank you so much today. Peter Bookvar, Thank Tim you. Seymour, Courtney Reagan for this labor shortage edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, energy prices are soaring, but few investors can capitalize on that rise. How the push for ESG is causing major ripple effects in the oil and gas industry, including hampering production. Remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to the Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here's what's happening at this hour. The White House may pick a former head of the FDA to once again lead the agency. The Washington Post reporting Robert Califf is a top contender for the Post although no final decision has been made. And all the news, FDA advisors vote on COVID booster shots and who's likely to get them first. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Steve Bannon may soon face contempt charges. He says that he will not appear at his deposition today for the House's investigation into the January 6th insurrection. Bannon says that former President Trump told him not to do it. The panel has set a vote on holding Bannon in contempt. And Trump, meantime, scheduled for a deposition of his own on Monday, a New York judge ordering him to be deposed for a lawsuit by a group of Mexican protesters who were assaulted in 2015 outside of Trump Tower in New York City. The protests happened after Trump called Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. And in Spain, fresh lava flows have forced another 700 people to leave their homes, bringing the total now to about 7,000. A magnitude 4.5 earthquake has also shaken the island of La Palma. It's the strongest quake since the volcano erupted. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Oil prices are hovering around a seven-year high, with West Texas crude topping $80 a barrel this week. But there is a lot less drilling going on than the last time prices were this high. As my next guest explains, that's because the big players are not investing in production anymore, thanks in part to the ongoing ESG push, leaving the surging market to smaller producers who can't keep up. He says banks are also reluctant to make energy loans, compounding the problem. And he's not just covering oil. He's also written the upcoming book, A Shot to Save the World, following the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Joining me now is Gregory Zuckerman with The Wall Street Journal. Greg, welcome back. Hey, great to see you, Kelly. And congrats on the new book. And I loved this piece this week, which I think really explains to people why there's not uh, going to be a massive supply surge. Before we get into the nitty gritty, do you think this means that oil prices might remain at these elevated levels for quite some time? I do. So I've been covering these markets and some of these wildcat or frackers over the years and never thought I would see this kind of change where they're focused on dividends, um, cash flow. It used to be all the production. They used to talk a big game about returning capital. They never did. And now they are. Um, there's all kinds of pressure on the part of investors. And it seems like they've changed. We're talking about the public companies, the big companies. So as a result, the privately held companies, uh, drillers and such are much more important and they just are not big enough to really step in here and help us out. Right. And I think that, you know, it's important to mention that while the ESG trend is very important, we have a decade of terrible returns for a lot of these drilling activities, whether oil and gas, shale. It's, it comes on top of an already. Is that why the banks are so reluctant? Of course, they're worried about ESG on the one hand. But on the other hand, because it hasn't been uh, historically a great uh, return on income, on return on their loans, I mean. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in some of them, I think both lenders and investors are sort of hiding behind maybe 
uh, ESG, giving that as the excuse or the reason, but they've been unbelievably awful returns. But now should be a time they're stepping up and they are feeling these kind of uh, ESG kind of pressures. Some of them are heartfelt and some of them are sort of virtue signaling, I would think. Uh, and sadly, we're not, not we're not ready yet to transition. We still get 80 percent of consumption comes from fossil fuels. So it's coming in an awful time, this production uh, issue, the challenges in terms of production. And we just don't have the private capital out there. There used to be tons of, as you know, private equity firms that were interested in energy and investing in energy about 29 or so just a few years ago. To, and today is just nine. So the private money is just not there. Yeah. And I've seen other publications saying that, you know, private equity is, you know, pumping up oil prices right now and all of that. And, you know, OK, maybe relative to zero, but, you know, it's certainly nowhere near the levels that once was at. Do you think this discipline remains, though, Greg? I mean, here's here's the sort of fundamental irony. If this remains the case and the oil price remains higher, then ultimately you're going to have to get more players in the market. I mean, it's so hard to maintain an equilibrium at a higher oil price. I wonder if this time really will be different. Listen, when it comes to commodities uh, like energy, uh, high prices solve high, high prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically. So you do think over time, you got to figure there'll be opportunities. People will step in. The Blackstones and the other kind of co- uh, big private equity firms and other types of investors will shift. Um, and we need them. I mean, frankly, it's a regressive tax. When energy prices go higher, um, it's the underclasses, the, the, the people that really can't afford both at the pump and to heat their home that get hurt the most. So uh, we are going to need more investment, both in alternatives, but in also fossil fuels, uh, sadly to say. Absolutely. And I think we're talking 15 percent of income if you're in sort of the bottom 10 percent of earners. And we know that. So this is on the gasoline side, on the oil side, on the natural gas side. The spikes are even worse, maybe a little bit more contained in the U.S., but probably a 30 percent increase in heating bills after this weekend. Oil and gas are linked, obviously, because of the way that they're fracked. So do you anticipate, you know, any kind of supply change in the U.S. where we could end up going from this shortage to a glut at some point or or no? Well, it all depends, obviously, on the global economy. If you argue that China is going to slow, then maybe globally we have sufficient amount of oil. And all projections sort of suggest that we're going to grow our consumption, our need or demand uh, for oil over the long term, but very slowly. We're talking maybe 1% a year. So you could see potentially a surge. And people like, you know, Harold Ham, uh, Continental, I'm sure they're itching to increase production. But until now, they felt this real pressure from investors and they've for the first time I've ever seen it, they're heating that pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Greg, thanks so much. Again, there's just great, great stats in this piece. I highly recommend it. Uh, Gregory Zuckerman joining us from The Wall Street Journal. His new book, A Shot to Save the World, hits shelves on October 26. And coming up, shares of overstock are falling about 16% over the past three months as supply chain issues and labor shortages pressure retailers. We're going to speak with CEO Jonathan Johnson about that in the upcoming holiday season next. As we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets. Uh, We're pretty much near session highs right now. The Dow up 515 points. Welcome back. Shares of e-commerce player Overstock.com are down about 15 percent in the past three months as supply chain woes and worker shortages have hit the retail space. But it might have an advantage over others as bottlenecks persist. Like the name promises, they only offer items for sale that are actually in stock or overstocked. And it's already worked with suppliers to position itself ahead of the holiday shopping surge. For more on the retail landscape ahead of an unprecedented Christmas season, let's welcome an Overstock.com CEO, Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, it's good to have you. Tell me what you mean in terms of positioning yourself with suppliers. 
Well, we have over 4,000 suppliers and they are really good at getting product into the United States for, so that we can list it on our site. We never put anything on our site. It's not in a warehouse and ready to ship. So unlike other companies that are just in time manufacturers and get bottlenecked at the ports, we experience bottlenecks, but it, that doesn't affect our customers because uh, we only sell what we have what we have in stock. But I imagine you still have a lot of SEO-driven traffic. So, you know, if, if I'm looking for an item you don't have, that would still be a lost sale. Sure. But with so many suppliers, what we've found that when one supplier is out of stock, for example, say on a mid-century modern black leather couch, another supplier generally has a similar or same couch for that. So while our in-stock percentage is not as quite as high as it was two years ago, it's a lot better than it was this time last year going into uh, the holiday season in 2020. So we think we're in a good position with inventory. So say that again, you're in a better supply position this year than you were last year? We are. Our in-stock is percentage is much higher. We've got great product. You know, one of the products that everyone's having a hard time getting right now, Christmas trees, mm-hmm. uh, we have for sale on the site, ready to ship right now. So, you know, when people are looking uh, for that holiday decoration, uh, come to Overstock. We've got it. I just saw one uh, for sale at Costco that was either four ninety nine, five, uh, either five hundred or six hundred dollars, basically, and it was it was lovely. But that's a lot of money for a Christmas tree. Let me ask you about uh, sort of an analogous situation. We at the top of the show spoke with an analyst who follows TJ Maxx and downgraded them because she said that they didn't have the inventory on shelves. She really thought they should going into the holiday season, especially in holiday kind of merchandise. Why wouldn't her downgrade apply to a company like yours since both of you basically take overstocked goods and resell them? Well, let me be clear. We don't sell overstocked goods. That's a legacy name. We're selling inline product that's, uh, that's, that's this year's product. This market is particularly good for our business model. We don't sell product or we don't own the product. It's owned by our suppliers. It's in their warehouse. So at a time of particularly high demand and low supply, most suppliers want to have maximum ways to sell their inventory. And if they're forced to put it in a fulfillment by Amazon warehouse or a castle gate at Wayfair, that limits the channel that they're selling it to. We let them sell it anywhere. Uh, So we have this year's goods, more suppliers listing their product on our site. I actually think this high demand, low supply time is the perfect time for overstock to excel. Well, it's a very, very interesting case. Obviously, your two-year performance there is quite dramatic, up 600%. Jonathan, uh, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to following the story into the Christmas season. Thanks, Kelly. Jonathan Johnson is the CEO of Overstock.com. Still ahead, a big jump in foreclosures last quarter as aid programs run out, but that doesn't necessarily spell doom for the housing market. We'll dig into those numbers next. Welcome back. Foreclosures soared last quarter as mortgage bailout programs ended. But don't let that 67% jump fool you. Things may not be as bad as they sound. Diana Olick is here to explain. Diana? Kelly, that headline number is pretty big, of course, but let's put it into perspective. We normally see around 40,000 new foreclosure actions a month. But with the mortgage bailouts, we were seeing next to none, just three to 4,000. 
forbearance programs, public and private, allowed borrowers to delay their monthly payments for up to 18 months. They are now ending for the first wave of troubled borrowers. So in Q3, mortgage lenders started the foreclosure process on just over 25,000 properties, a 32 percent increase from the second quarter and up 67 percent from a year ago, according to Adam. The highest levels in California, Texas, Florida, New York and Illinois. Now, the numbers are still well below normal, but the rise does serve as a warning that foreclosures are headed back to pre-pandemic levels. There are still 1.4 million borrowers in forbearance plans. That's according to Black Knight. Now, I spoke with Dave Stevens, former FHA commissioner under Obama during the subprime foreclosure crisis. He said, I think the forbearance cliff will be minimal. Unlike the Great Recession, where home prices dropped approximately 20 percent from peak to trough, this recession saw home values rise by roughly the same amount. And of course, that means most of those who are unable to get current on their loans could sell and even possibly net a profit, Kelly. Interesting. And what's the impact been on landlords, given how long this moratorium did last? Well, for landlords, if they've been in trouble on their mortgage, they can get into these programs as well. But really, for them, it's getting that payment in from the renters so that they can pay the mortgage itself and they can also pay some of the costs, the property upkeep, the taxes. So that's been rough for them. But as you know, that the eviction uh, moratorium expired, so they're starting to see more income come in again. Right. And again, just to differentiate the foreclosure moratorium on the one hand, the eviction moratorium on the other being more of a direct hit for landlords there. But even they say they've been you know, kind of trying to take things as they come if they've made it through this point. The cash buffer has been a big help for a lot of people. What's the, been the impact, Diana, as we talked about, of all the people who have been buying homes uh, investor-wise, taking them on the market? When we spoke the other day with Ivy Zellman's firm, one of their concerns is you could unleash a wave of supply back onto the market, right, if, you know, if the market turns. Yeah, and Kelly, I can't tell you how much pushback I've gotten from other analysts on that, saying there's no way that we're overbuilt and we're going to have too much supply, given how much demand we have right now. For those landlords, for the investors in the market right now, they're still seeing high demand from renters. They're still seeing increased prices. So for them, they have no reason right now to sell. If you were to start to see more foreclosures, that is, more inventory come on the market, I think you would just see it snatched up by those investors mm. anyway. So it's really not going to hurt the overall housing market. Yeah, maybe now would be sort of a better time to, for that to be absorbed. All right, Diana, thank you very much. Diana Olick. Before we go, let's get a quick check on Merck, where shares are taking a bit of a leg lower. Merck now on pace for its fifth straight day of losses. After that announcement, the FDA will hold an advisory committee meeting to discuss the request for a emergency use authorization of its COVID antiviral. This is the pill, remember. The drug is meant to be administered to high-risk individuals with a newly diagnosed COVID infection. We saw big gains around that announcement. A little bit of profit-taking now. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.